Well, I'm so uh, glad to be here with you all today. It's good. And it's, I think, really enjoyable to be able to be with friends. Uh, Dave, a friend of mine, uh, brother, CJ, a friend of mine. And um, and so I, I feel somewhat at home. And so I may be a bit relaxed today, but uh, you can blame that on Dave and CJ because uh, they make me feel at home. So I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And it's so cool to be able to be in, uh, in, in the town and be able to preach to folks in the city, you know, and, um, and wherever you may find yourself, uh, that brothers and sisters can be united even across the bridge. And so real thankful for the Bay love that I'm feeling today. Um, and with that said, I'm really excited about uh, Holy Week. And uh, it's something that each year that I'm, I'm a Christian, um, going into, I think, my uh, 23rd year of, uh, of Christianity, um, is something that I want to make a bigger deal of. You know, I want to do this huge feast, you know, and, and, um, and hopefully we get to do more of that next year uh, versus just on Easter. And so I'm so glad that this is a, a big deal to you as it is to so many believers around the world. And so um, uh, with that said, let me uh, pray for our time uh, once again before I, I preach the word. And then I'll go ahead and just, uh, just preach what the Lord placed on my heart regarding this text. Uh, let's pray. Um, Father, um, we're so thankful that you, you hear us. You listen to us, Lord. And so we pray right now that you would um, animate your word in our hearts. Lord, would you do a work in our hearts? May your word convict us where we need conviction. May it bring new life where new life is needed, resurrection. And Lord, uh, we pray, God, that not only would we be hearers of the word, but we will be doers of your word. Lord, may we see you in this text. May we see you in this text, Lord. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. Well, as we've already stated over and over again, this marks the, uh, the Christian calendar, a very important uh, place in the Christian calendar. And this is the, the, the Holy Week. This is the first day of Holy Week, and it marks the last day of Jesus's life before the resurrection. And Jesus is going to start at this point in his life, and this point in the narrative of, of Matthew, Jesus is going to start this 2,600-foot ascension to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem for what will be the lowest moment of his life symbolically. Symbolically. Jesus is moving to what will be the climax of his life, and isn't it ironic that as Jesus moves higher in altitude, he moves lower in position. Palm Sunday is the perfect picture, I believe, of what the gospel requires of us to have if we are to have God. And if God is to have us, this is what's necessary. And I believe that Jesus displays this in a very special way. So this year, this Palm Sunday, I want to uh, focus on a particular aspect of Palm Sunday that I think is important here and is all over this story. And that is the humility that Christ has before the Father which is why I hope we see the triumph of Christ's humility in his triumphal entry. I hope that we see the triumph of his humility in, in a, a humble triumph because it is absolutely necessary and it's a part of the gospel and it's a part of what it means to receive God. Humility must be present. And it has 
major and significant implications for our faiths, for our relationships, and for our lives. I like the way that scripture defines humility in several cases. There are several words for humility in the Old Testament and in the New, but but one of the, the, the definitions that applies here when we look at the text that was quoted in the Old Testament, Zechariah, the definition of humility is defined as the literal action of lowering the height of an object. It's the literal action of, of lowering a height. So, so may that be a picture to you that every time you, you lower a camera stand or you lower a chair or you lower a, a desk, like if you have a stand-up desk, like if you fancy like that, every time you, you lower something, may that speak to you the, the literal definition of, of humility. It's lowering the object of something. And, and we see this lowering, I believe, in Jesus' ministry. And we see it begin... Uh, even explicitly back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is always giving hint of this, this lowering that's going to have to happen and even this elevation that has to happen, but this simultaneously lowering and elevation and elevating. In Luke 9, 51, Jesus says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That means that he was determined and he set his face and his affections and, and all in his will, it is set on Jerusalem and what must happen there in connection to him being taken up. This is a symbolic language, and this is imagery of the crucifixion. Here, Jesus is lowering the height of himself that he may be taken up. This is humility. Jesus is symbolically low during what is arguably the most triumphant moment of his earthly ministry before the crucifixion. You still see Jesus humble and given this example of what it means to be humble before the Father. And so today we'll see that Jesus' triumphal entry is in fact a triumph of his holy humility for our good and for God's glory. And so that's what I want us to see, even with all of the noise of celebration I want us to see the humility, the quiet and beautiful humility that's present before the Lord and look at what those implications are for our life. So the first thing I want us to see is really going to be two points. The first point is going to be a king's coronation, a king's coronation. And the first scene that we're going to see here, starting with verses one, and as the story is unfolding, we notice that Jesus and the company with them, the disciples, they as they approach Jerusalem, Jesus is going to send two disciples to the town and to the village ahead of them to retrieve two animals. The two animals was, were, were a donkey and a colt, the donkey being the mother and the colt being the offspring of the mother. Jesus tells them to go. You're going to find two of these beasts there, tied up, untie them, and bring them to me. And if anyone asks, you are the report to them that you are in, that I am in need of it and send these animals right away. Well, they do just that. And they're doing this because they're getting ready to, to be this climactic event that's happening. And I want you to get a sense of the atmosphere. It's an electrifying atmosphere. And this is very important for them to do this because there's more going on behind the scenes. Well, what's going on? Well, I think there's three things that we should see here. One, it will be the fulfillment of prophecy. Two, the preparation and praise of coronation. And three, there's the promise and time and place that needs to be considered here. So what do I mean by the fulfillment of prophecy? The fulfillment of prophecy is, is what's going on here when Jesus tells them and commands them to fulfill, I mean, to, to retrieve these two animals. 
we see in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 21 that this took place. Why? To fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Who are they, are they quoting? They're quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. They say that here, say to the daughter of Zion, that is Jerusalem, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Palm Sunday is a holy, predicted, and prophetic moment in history as Jesus entered Jerusalem at the final stage of his life. Until that point, you have whispers of the king. You have whispers of the long-awaited king, the, the stump of Jesse. You have long, you have these whispers of this long-awaited king, but now it's becoming shouts of reality. It's happening. It's, it's here. The, the, the Messiah has returned, and, and that's what's filling the atmosphere right now, which is why this next point is important because this is actually what's going on right now. This is no ordinary day. This is preparation and praise for coronation. The, 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 the animals are needed for the fulfillment of prophecy, but it's also in order to roll out the carpet of this coronation. As stated above, this, is, this prophecy specifies to Zion, to Jerusalem, that this is a king. It's a, it's a king that they're referring to. See, your king comes to you, and Jesus is just that. And so this is a coronation. A coronation is the insulation of a king. It's the celebration of a king. And it's the process in the ceremony where words are pronounced and praise is pronounced over the king. The king has returned. Anyone who knows me, you would know, and you would quickly know um, that my favorite movie is Lord of the Rings. And I think Peter Jackson did an excellent job with Tolkien's um, Lord of the Rings in the last installment of that series, The Return of the King. I love the movie, but there's a coronation in, that, uh, in this film. Beautiful coronation. I even love this, the king's song in that coronation. Uh, during that time, but that, that coronation is not like this one. As a matter of fact, I'm willing to say that there's not, and there's never been a coronation like this one. See, the king is coming, and there's preparation for the king's coronation. There's so much going on. What do you see going on? Matthew, 8, uh, Matthew 21, verses uh, 8, starting there, it lays it out. There's a very large crowd. They're, they spread their cloaks on the road, other cut branches in the trees, and these are specifically palm branches. We know that from other gospel uh, accounts. They spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him uh, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and they asked, who is this? They knew exactly who this was, those that were following along with Jesus and what do they say as they're responding to this question? It's the son of David, which means what? It is the prophet, excuse me, specifically, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But they uh, uh, quickly attach that to the reality that this is the son of David, which means he is royalty. The king has returned, and this has quickly turned into a coronation. I hope you get a sense of what's going on here. It is a electrifying atmosphere. There's a lot of people, which brings me to this, even this last point. It is the primacy of time and place, which Jesus chose this specifically this time, because as we learn in scripture, Jesus came at the fullness of time. 
This is one of the primary moments on the Jewish calendar. This is Passover. This is this probably the second most important date on the Jewish calendar, second to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement that happens in uh, September. This is the primary moment, one of the primary moments of the Jewish calendar. And if you remember, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament before you have or during the period of the Exodus when Israel was in bondage to Israel and God passed over the people of Israel and those that trusted the God of Israel as an act of mercy and as an act of grace. This was a Passover and they were commanded to remember that day for all generations. See, Jesus comes during this time and we know how many people were in the city based off of a census that was taken 10 years from this moment. And 10 years from this moment, we can estimate what was going on 10 years prior. And we estimate that based on the amount of lambs that were slaughtered for the ceremony and slaughtered for sacrifice, there were about 2 million Jews present in Jerusalem. 2 million Jews. You have people following Jesus from the, from the town prior. You have Jesus entering into a new crowd of people that's already there in Jerusalem. There's 2 million people, the, and there's thousands of people that are probably present for this coronation. And there's shouts of joy, and there's shouts of celebration as Jesus enters, which is why we have titled this for all of church history, the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ. Is quite triumphant and is quite triumphal as Jesus is entering into this thick atmosphere of praise. However, I, I, I want us to see something that may not be as present to the eye. We heard it earlier throughout the liturgy. We heard it today that, that there are going to be times where we're going to see that the, the crowd that, that, that uh, is in coronation yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, it will be the same crowd five days later yelling, crucify him, crucify him. There's something about the affections of this crowd that I, I think that is also true of the human experience with God. See, there's exaltation going on, and there is great humility present here. And we're going to look at how that humility is present, but it may be in reverse order than what we think may be appropriate. But what, what do I mean by that? I think that we see that in the fact that there's also something else going on. You have a king's coronation, but you also have the desire for self-coronation. You have the desire for, for human coronation, for, for, for the crowd to see themselves at the center of what's going on here. See, the crowd, they're saying, or the question that I want to ask you is that what are they saying when they say Hosanna to the son of David? What do they mean by that? See, Hosanna literally means praise be to yeah, they're saying praise be to the prophet from Galilee. Praise be to the son of David. He's royalty. Praise be to the Messiah who's come as prophecy has predicted. Praise be to him. But what is he actually saying? What are they saying? See, what they are saying may be different than what Jesus is actually or who Jesus is. See, we know from the context here that what they are saying when they say Hosanna, Hosanna, it is synonymous to political liberator, political liberator. 
See, what we're discussing here is not the celebration or simply the celebration of celebrity. It's the symbol when you see palm branches going out. It's the symbol actually of the zealot movement at this time. It's the symbol of what was known as uh, this, the palm branch. It was a symbol of the zealot movement. And the zealot is specifically and literally called dagger people. They were dagger people because they were known to uh, cause insurrections and and um, and assassinate those that they believe were threatening their attempts to become um, occupiers of their own land or to regain authority over their own land. They were occupied by Rome at the time. The symbol of the Zealot movement was a palm branch. Waving palm branches in the view of Rome was a capital offense as it was seen as a symbol of insurrection against the empire. So, as Jesus enters, what is taking place is rebellion against the empire at the highest order. That's actually what's going on, and that may not be as evident to the eye, but that's a part of what's going on right now. And I can tell you right now, based off my own personality, if I'm going through the city, I'm probably going to be like, yo, y'all need to hold this down. Stop yelling so loud. Pick those palm branches up. Y'all causing too much attention. Rome sees, and here's what you're doing. But thank the Lord that I am not the king of kings. Jesus knows exactly what this means. The Jews know exactly what this means. And the religious elite of the day, they know exactly what this means. And one of the last times that this happened in Jewish culture, in Jewish history, was more than a century later, or a little over a century uh, earlier, excuse me. The crowd begins quoting a conquering psalm to Jesus. And they quoted the same conquering psalm to a conqueror that conquered about a century, a little over a century earlier. And they conquered, They were quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And this is the same Psalm that was used for Simon Maccabeus. This is from the famous, you may, this may sound familiar, the Maccabees or the book of Maccabees, first and second Maccabees. It's because of a revolt that was led by Simon Maccabeus, the Jewish conqueror of the Hellenistic king Antiochus. He threw him off. And don't forget, this is the first time that the Jews had experienced uh, independence for, uh, for centuries. See, since the last uh, fall of the last king of Israel, Israel had been occupied essentially by Assyria, uh, then by the Babylonians, and then by the Persians, and then came the Greeks, and then there was independence, and then came Rome. And so they didn't have a long period to, to realize they want to go back to the golden age and go back to their independent state of their minarchy. But now they see their opportunity to, to have this freedom. Yet again, the king has returned. Let's get, to get things popping. If I can say it in my urban vernacular, it's time to get back to business as usual. It's time to get back to life as we desire. See, I believe that the filter that they saw Jesus through and the Jesus that actually was were quite different. And that is often the case in our own lives. It is often different. We've seen that this different perspective of Jesus, how it can be different and it can be um, this huge dichotomy of truth and perception. We've seen this throughout all church history. We've seen this. And, and when some see Jesus, they often see him as the, pers the person that's supposed to put their president and put their person into power. That sounds quite familiar to me. When we see Jesus throughout history and even now, we believe that sometimes he's the person that's 
supposed to make us financially successful and comfortable and give us the good life as we see and as we define it. When we see Jesus, he becomes this person that's supposed to make those that doubt us and those haters of us envious of us by making us so successful and so prosperous that even our doubters become envious of us. We make Jesus to be something that he never said he was. I think that's something that we can learn so much that we can learn here by looking at the crowd, because I see myself even in the crowd, even doing this climactic moment in Jesus's ministry. See, we're not coming down on the Jews because it was an understandable expectation, however, a miscalculated expectation. And I believe that there's something here that they missed. There's a drastic turn that I think is about to happen in the in the story as we look at the truth of what's going on and that they would have seen if they looked a little closer. See, there is often a fundamental difference between what humans want from God and what God wants for humans. The Jews wanted their long-awaited Messiah, but they wanted him on their own terms. They wanted a Messiah that will lift them up. Instead, he will be a Messiah who has to be lifted up in great humiliation through the cross that they may enter in and that we may enter in, enter into the kingdom and enter into relationship with the Lord, that is. If you look a little closer, you will quickly discover that this is not the same type of king as they wanted or expected. And I want to look at that here. Because as a matter of fact, I want us to see here that when you look at this picture of triumph from a cultural and from a natural perspective, everything is actually all wrong. From a, a cultural and a natural perspective of this triumphal, triumphant entry or triumphal entry, excuse me, that everything is actually all wrong, wherein lies the point of today's sermon. We see the difference between what culture expects and what Jesus delivers. Let's look at some of those differences here that is present actually with this coronation. What culture expected and what the culture expected at that time and what we often even expect is the impressive and highly coveted. This is what we are drawn to, and this is what we find solace in, and what we find our confidence in is, is when we are impressive people, or we are drawn to that which is impressive. We heard it earlier in the liturgy that we are, are that you have elements, you have entities fighting for our affections. Those affections are typically drawn away by the impressive of our culture, the highly coveted. That's not what Jesus delivers on this coronation, though. What Jesus delivers is actually the unimpressive and the undesired if you actually look at what he's delivering. See, what actually happens is, is that their filter is so thick and the filter is on. They actually read into what the scriptures is saying, what they read right past, what it actually says. In Zechariah 9, it says that Jesus will come in on a donkey, and the word that's used, as we've seen today in Matthew, was gentle, but the Hebrew word there is humble, that he will come humbly on a colt. The colt is synonymous with humility, as seen in Zechariah. However, the, the, the praise and the expectation and, and all the, the electrifying um, praise in the air at the time, it was more synonymous to them with pomp and with a warrior king that's coming in on a horse and on a stallion, but that's not how Jesus came. He came humbly on a donkey or on a colt, rather. The culture expects a conqueror. They expect achievement through might. 
or conquering through might. They wanted a king with a sword and, and a, war, a king of war. However, that's not what they got. What they got was a conqueror through submission and obedience to God. They didn't get a king of war. They got the prince of peace who came in grace and truth. And scripture tells us in Revelation chapter 7 that there's going to be a different coronation that happens there. There's going to be a glorious coronation where, where Jesus will actually be on a stallion, on a horse, and he will come to judge. However, that's not the way that Jesus enters into Jerusalem in order that he may continue on with the process of achieving our salvation. What they wanted, lastly, was the removal of difficulty. The culture expects a removal of difficulty. And I think that we see that as well. And in my most honest moments and transparent moments, I will tell you that, listen, I want the Lord to simply remove the difficult things in my life, remove the difficult things that I have to face. And I don't want to face anything in the future that is difficult. Lord, can we come up with some type of arrangement where I pray to you as often as possible to make sure that you're removing those things that will be difficult in my future. See, that they thought that their biggest threat and their biggest problem was Rome. They thought that their biggest problem was the removal of Rome, but Jesus does not enter into Jerusalem to cleanse Rome. He enters into Jerusalem immediately after this to cleanse the temple, which means that Jesus is not there to remove their difficulty. He's there to remove their guilt. The biggest problem with humanity and the biggest problem facing the Jews that they did not know and they did not understand at this time was not Rome, it was sin. And it's the same as today. And it doesn't mean that we should have a passive or a weak view of justice in this world. I believe Christians above all people have a great have great reasoning and great anchoring of, with theological robust reasoning as to why we should fight and advocate for godly kingdom justice, as we know that God is going to make all things right as his kingdom is advancing in this world. However, we are not blinded, and let us not be blinded, that the biggest problem in our lives is sin. The biggest problem in our lives, spouse, is not your wife. The biggest problems in your, your life is not your roommate. It's not that, that boss that continues to ride you. It's not that. It's not even this culture, not new laws that we don't like. It's sin. And Jesus comes to deal exactly deal with that. This is a coronation like no other because this was a king like no other. And what you and I needed wasn't a earthly high king. We needed a divine, humble, and low king. I believe that the desire for human self-exaltation is synonymous to relational compromise with human and with God. Why? Because self-exaltation and human exaltation, the, the, this narrative that we come to believe that in any given moment that we are the most important entity, that we are the, mo that we are the center of the universe, whenever that happens in our life, and that can happen as often as we cry me. When that happens, it actually causes relational damage to relational fabric. Because self-exaltation, it breeds pride, and pride is the enemy of humility. Pride fills, whereas humility empties. We must stay empty of ourselves that we may be filled with God and godliness, as Scripture is going to give us over and over again. And I, we see an example of this, as we read earlier, that Jesus empties himself himself. 
And we see that there's a correlation between this emptying and this humility, and this humility is present even at this triumphant moment. Philippians 2, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse starting with verse 3. We see here, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. This is the Lord in all of his humility, even at the climax of praise and esteem, Jesus remained in a low and great, uh, humble place. And so I want to just uh, get ready to conclude with these ideas of just listen. Practically, we see what pride produces. And I believe that when pride is present, you do not have a triumphant entry that will conclude with five days later with Jesus on the cross. Jesus has to remain humble in humility. This great king, he comes in humility. And I think that that's something that we should learn and that we should contemplate on this holy week. Pride is always self-seeking. However, humility is other-seeking. Pride causes us to reject what's right and humility causes us to endure what's wrong. Pride pushes others low that we may elevate high. A Jesus humility decides to go low before others, knowing that God will lift them high in due season, as, as the word tells us. I like this quote even from Augustine, the 4th century and 5th century um, church father. He says that a proud person is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you, namely God. Humility is what was necessary from Jesus on Palm Sunday. If, humi if humility would have a relationship, excuse me, if humanity would have a relationship with God because of Good Friday. I believe that on Palm Sunday, though there is celebration, Jesus knew it was more important to remain humble before God and undistracted by human agendas. As we've stated before, this, the fact is the same crowd that cried Hosanna, Hosanna on Sunday will be the same crowd crying crucify him, crucify him on Friday. Jesus remains centered and humble and humble, low obedience before the Father, even when other people are pumping him up and praising him. I think that there's something there. I tell you, I begin to feel myself a little bit after people keep on telling me about myself. I don't know if that's true with you. I begin, I begin distracted and I lose sight of the cross in front of me that Jesus tells me to take up. I lose sight of this beautiful king in front of me when I get pumped up in those weak moments. Jesus does not. It remains humble. Question is, as we conclude, are you humble before God or exalted before humanity? Matthew 23, verse 12, it tells us that whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I believe that Jesus' humility before God, the Father, it reconciles believers. Because Jesus emptied himself to the point of obedience 
to the point of dying on the cross for the sake of our good and for the glory of his Father. I believe that Jesus' humility makes his followers a humble people, and it should have great implications for our lives. And I believe this Jesus' humility on this day invites his non-followers to become followers by humbling themselves and seeking their real and true need for him. And real quick, before I close with this Tim Keller quote, um, I actually want to uh, close with, with uh, actually, we're not going to close with, with a Tim Keller quote, um, Dave. We're going to close with Martin Lord, Lloyd-Jones. I love this in his work, Gentle and Lowly, uh, by Dane Artland. A great work. I recommend it. I love what he quotes here regarding the need for humility, what pride does, and how it blocks us from seeing ourselves as we ought to see ourselves, which keeps us with a proper view of ourselves. Martin Lord Jones says this, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. And humility, godly humility, allows us to have that dim conception, glimmering conception of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I'm, we're so thankful that those of us that believe, Lord, that we know that we did not come to believe because of our own ability we need you, Lord, to make us humble, that pride would not block us from seeing our desperate need for you. And Lord, we're so thankful that you have exemplified for us yet again that this obedience to the will of the Father, it takes great humility because humility empties us that we may be filled with the Spirit, filled with strength, that our shoulders may be broad enough to take Upon take the cross upon us that you invite us to carry, that we may be obedient to you. Lord, we see that the king has returned, and this is a king like no other, but we're so thankful that the king that you returned to Jerusalem in Matthew 21 is not the same king or the same type of king that would come back in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 will be the triumphant king who comes to judge Thank you, Lord, that you do not come to judge in Matthew 21 because we need your, we needed your humility, God, that we may receive forgiveness for sin, Lord. We need forgiveness of our sins, God. We're so thankful for your humility. We're so thankful for your love. We celebrate you, King of Kings. We celebrate you, Lord of Lords, even with your great humility. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.